We are in a red letter study. And so the red letter study is just following the words of Jesus through the New Testament. We're trying to harmonize all four Gospels so that we get all the information. Because unless, in case you didn't know, not everything is in every Gospel. And so by harmonizing the four and bringing them together, we can get the fullness of the, of the message. And just looking at the, the words of Jesus, which in some editions are printed in red, and so hence the red letter study, just try to understand what Jesus was talking about from a first century Hebrew Aramaic point of view, which changes everything. When you put it back into that language, back into that context, not just understanding what the words meant to them, although that's huge, especially when you do a root and pattern study, you go back to the roots of the words because of the way Semitic languages are constructed, we can get more of the idea behind, the concept behind the people at that time of what they meant by certain words and phrases, idiomatic expressions, by looking deeper into the language, not just the actual definition. So that's the way that we're going about this. But it really does change everything when we do that. Suddenly, Jesus' teaching becomes non-legal, and it becomes very much about relationship and always pointing to this degreeless love of the Father. And so we're going through this study right now. We have entered recently the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to kind of do a little bit more of an of a overview rather than really dig in like we did a year and a half ago. But um, today we're talking about the law. Last Sunday we talked about the law, but I thought it would be good to hit it again because this is so difficult for us. Just as human beings, you know, because we're rule followers and because life presents rules to us, doesn't it? Life presents a way of living life that's based on performance, doesn't it? You get what you earn, you know. You eat what you kill, however you're going to say that. But the idea is, yeah, fishermen over here. The idea here is, in God's economy, there's a completely different way of looking at life that isn't about competition, that isn't about performance. We don't have to prove our acceptance to God or to anyone. It's there because we're here breathing. This is, if anything, is the main thrust of Jesus' message, is to try to deconstruct that, to tear that notion down so that we have a actual clear shot at being able to see what the Father God is all about. That it's not about what we thought. He's not up there on the throne ready to throw thunderbolts at us. He's not judging everything. We're not going to be judged based on a snapshot of our life. That is not the God that Jesus is talking about. So what does it look like when we dig in a little deeper? Last week we dealt with Matthew 5.20 and we're going to hit that again today. But I want to take it from a little bit different perspective and Maybe to start with, gosh, it's getting to be many years ago, many moons ago, uh, when I did a prison visit, and I've done a a few of those in my time as a pastor. But this one specifically hit me. I was down at the Men's Central Jail here in Santa Ana, and I was visiting um, the son of a friend who asked me to come down, heroin addict who had gotten hit for usage and possession and possible dealing and whatnot. And so she said, just come and talk to him. So I said, okay. I don't know how many of you have ever done a prison visit. Okay, a few of you. It's like entering a different world. I mean, a completely different world. As soon as you enter the prison, you're part of the system. And you feel it, you know. You're the one who is looked at with, uh, with suspicion. And you have to go through every ninth degree in order to get 
done what you need to do. And time doesn't mean much in the prison system, you know, and maybe you can imagine um, because they'll keep you waiting forever and it's just part of the way that the thing works. But you go in and you check in and they give you, you tell them who you're seeing and they give you two numbers. They give you a number for a door and a number for a window. And armed with that, you go into this huge waiting area. And this thing was a vast space. And on the far wall was just a row of doors and each door had a number over it. And everything on the floor was bolted down. You know, the benches were bolted down, any tables were bolted down. And so you just sat and you waited until your first number was called. And when your first number is called, the door would open and you'd walk in. And what you're presented with is just this long corridor with seats along each wall all the way down that are bolted down and short dividers. There's really no privacy when you're talking in a situation like this. But at least it, it sort of hid your face at seating, seating height long rows of windows. And if you looked through the window, you could see all the other rows all the way across. So it was kind of like interlaced fingers where the visitors entered from this side and the prisoners entered from the other side. And then each alternating row was either a row of visitors or a row of prisoners. And then a row of visitors and a row of prisoners, if you can picture that. So you walk in and you find your number of the window and you sit down on this little metal stool and you wait. And it's got the telephone hanging on the wall. It's just like a movie scene, right? And you're looking out in that window and waiting for your, your uh, person to come. And you're looking through and it goes green into the distance after glass pane, after glass pane, after glass pane. And you're watching all these people having all these conversations. And maybe it's not what you would expect. It's not like there were tears or anything. It was almost like a party. It was almost like a, a get-together or a gathering. There's all these people there. The, the young women are all dressed up and made up and, and looking good. And then there are older people that were parents or grandparents. It's kind of hard to say. There was a, a big Hispanic man who was there who was very loud. And obviously, I figured he's either a pastor, maybe a coach, or some kind of, of uh, community leader because he was counseling and he was encouraging and he had that air to him, you know, and he was going around and, and talking. There was two girls that were sitting right next to me talking to a person and, and they were kind of floating between English and Spanish, you know, back and forth and, and talking. And so I'm sitting there, I actually was waiting in that seat for 45 minutes before uh, my prisoner came and sat down in front of me. So I turned around in my seat and I'm just looking out over all these people doing all these things and, and talking and laughing. And the person who was exactly opposite me got up and left. And so I had a clearer shot at looking at the girl who was one seat down on the other side. So I'm kind of looking at her kind of over her shoulder, three-quarter view, so I could see part of her face. And she's talking to what I assumed was her boyfriend. Couldn't tell if they were married or not. But he's facing her in his orange jumpsuit. And they're talking. And... You know what? As I'm watching her, I thought, they could be sitting across a white tablecloth, candlelit dinner at the best restaurant you could imagine for the way that she was communicating with him. The look in her eyes, the, the, the body language, you know, couldn't hear the words, but just the tone of her voice and his reaction. They were just in this deep conversation. And it really struck me. She didn't care about his offense. Whatever it was that he did, she was just there for him, completely connected to him, all obviously forgiven, 
and they're just talking and talking and talking. I thought of him as the prodigal son in an orange jumpsuit who comes back to his father's estate and he's just welcomed with open arms and, and the party is, the table is set and the party is thrown for him because there was nothing in her that gave any indication that she was in a prison talking to her inmate boyfriend. It was beautiful. But at the same time, isn't it unfair? Isn't there something wrong with that? If you really think about it, what about the victims? Who, whatever he did, whoever he perpetrated against, what about them? Aren't we forgetting about them? Wasn't she forgetting about them? Don't we tend to forget about the elder brother of the prodigal? You know, what his father did to him was really unfair. I mean, if you think about it, the firstborn was the one who was supposed to get the estate. And then firstborn would run it and bring all the other siblings and everyone into it. And here, father gives away a chunk of the estate to his younger brother who goes away and blows it all. And then comes back and is received back into the family as if nothing happened. Again, full inheritance, full estate, big party. Well, that's cutting his share down. That's not giving any credence to everything that he did, staying there faithfully working on his father's estate while his brother was off partying. How fair is that? The father was really being unfair. What about the elder brother? What about the victim? Now, you could say the brother was a victim of his father's generosity and his father's love. What about his pain? As I was sitting there and watching this girl, I was thinking, you know what? She and God are orange colorblind. They don't see orange. They don't see our jumpsuits. They don't see our faults. God only sees love. And he sees us with that love all the time. We obsess over the color of our jumpsuits. We obsess over the things that we've done. But when God looks at us, he looks at us like that girl looking at her boyfriend through the glass, through the jumpsuit, just into his eyes. That is so hard for us to understand, to conceive of, because it's not fair. God's love is not fair. God's love deliberately unbalances the scales of justice always in the favor of the beloved. And that's what's so difficult for us to process. How can this be true? Why should this be true? Because what about justice? What about justice? God's supposed to be just, right? How is he being just here? Now, the church emphasizes justice, absolutely. The church emphasizes obedience, emphasizes law. I remember when I brought up this very question to someone at the church that I was you know, doing pastoral training at at one point, trying to understand how is God's perfect love, how does that juxtapose over this idea of law and justice and punishment and all that? And he said, he, I mean, I'll never forget, he told me, God's holiness is so pure and so powerful, God's holiness, so pure, so powerful, that it would just burn up, instantly turn to ash. Anything that was impure, 
anything that was not completely whole or perfect in its presence. That was the answer that he gave. So I'm thinking about that. That makes sense to you? <laughs> Didn't make sense to me either. But the idea here is, it's God's holiness was like this white light that if, if you showed up with even a little bit of spot on your shoulder, it would just burn you up. You know, everything had to be completely, completely perfect. Otherwise, and it could reflect that holiness. Otherwise, and I'm, so I'm thinking, does that make God a slave to his own justice? Does that make God a slave to his own holiness? Does God even have a choice in the matter? God's holiness is just such that it's going to obliterate, annihilate, destroy anything that's not perfect in his presence. Is that really what Jesus is saying? Is that really what this is all about? I was sure that it wasn't. I was sure that there had to be another way around this because can't God love the way that he wants to love? Isn't that what Jesus' message is really all about? Showing us how God's love, how God's love works, accepting people just as they are, touching lepers, forgiving paralytics before they have done any kind of penance, asking and accepting tax collectors to follow him before they have done any change, any repentance on their part. This is what Jesus is all about. And yet you're telling me the father that he's supposed to be representing is going to obliterate anything that's not perfect in his presence. None of this was making any sense. And the reason that it wasn't making any sense is because it was missing an essential understanding between macro and micro. And this, when I got my arms wrapped around this, this made all the sense to me in the world. Now, macro deals with groups of people. Macro deals with something that's large. Micro deals with one-on-one, -on -one, the individual, or the individual with an individual. Now, macro doesn't have to be big to be a group. It can just be more than two. As soon as you have three or more, you've got a group. And all the dynamics change. Have any of you watched two children playing? Just you watch them, little, little toddlers, whatever, and they're playing, they're doing what they do. Add a third child to it and see what happens. The whole dynamic changes. Now it's all about fairness. Now everything has to be this and has to be that. And you make a third. If you're raising two children, you know, they might be one-on-one, -on -one, but you make the third. And now they're going to be... In, in a group of three or more, everyone's looking for the authority. Everyone's looking for the arbiter. Everyone's going to look for the power that's great enough to make everything equal and fair and balanced and just, right? Groups deal very differently, differently in relationship than individuals can. And that's what is missing, missing. Because if you think of it, God's love is one thing. It's this unconditional, degreeless. It has no degree. It's just always on full blast. There's nothing you can do to attenuate it. Jesus says it falls on the just and the unjust alike, like rain, like sunshine. All there, all the time. It's just this one thing. But when it's falling on a group, love looks like justice. When it's falling on an individual, it looks like mercy and compassion. And we have to understand the difference between the two. The greatest good in a group is to keep everything fair. You will lose the group. Once you lose the fairness, you lose the group. 
Justice is the highest good. So love to the group is going to look like justice, which is the highest good for that group. It's not perfect, but it's the highest good. But when you move to the individual, then it's about mercy and compassion. It has to be that way. Otherwise, we miss what's going on. Love looks like justice in the macro, looks like compassion in the micro. Justice must rule in the macro to sustain the cohesion of the group. But here's the key. God never relates to us in macro, in the macro context. God relates to us individually, one-on-one, all the time, always in the micro I wanted to read just a little bit, shameless plug, this is from my book, called, called The Fifth Way. But just a, a few paragraphs, just to see if we can sink this in. Compassion is not just, and justice is not compassionate, nor should they be. If you think of justice as getting what you deserve, either positively or negatively, then mercy is not getting what you negatively deserve, and compassion could be considered giving what is not positively deserved, or at least earned. That makes sense without following along? Mercy and compassion do not right any wrongs. They deliberately unbalance the scales of justice. They are unashamedly unfair in order to favor the object of affection. Justice, in order to be completely fair, must willfully ignore and suppress any feelings of affection or desire for mercy that may arise, like a judge who must follow the letter of the law, even if it keeps her tossing and turning all night. But though mercy and justice seem diametrically opposed and separate in this way, at root, they are both manifestations of the same reign of unity, of God's love, and both are critical aspects of ethical decision-making. Knowing the difference between the two and when and where each must take precedence for the greatest good, for the greatest shalom, the peace, the wholeness, are critical to making choices that create and preserve kingdom, as Jesus understood kingdom, that quality of life that we can have when we are completely present. Is there a difference between the way we relate to a solitary person who is right in front of us and the way we relate to an entire population of any group? our family, our church, our company, our city, state, nation, our world? Not to see that the answer is yes is to treat individuals in the same way we treat a group or vice versa. And it does great harm to both. In the macro, compassion is not enough. Justice must prevail, must be prized and sought beyond compassion and mercy in order for the group to survive. But in the micro, justice is not enough. Face to face and person to person, compassion and mercy must prevail and be sought above justice in order for kingdom to exist at all. Since people don't and won't always act in loving ways to maintain order, The basic mode of operation in the macro for the common good is justice, righting wrongs and making things equal. There must be a power in the macro strong enough to arbitrate disputes, judge offenders, and force all parties into submission. But the message of Yeshua, that's Jesus, and all scripture is that in the micro, 
Balancing scales and giving only what is deserved or earned could never describe the love that God desires us to have for one another. As Yeshua said at Matthew 5, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Bright lines need to be drawn here. A group cannot be compassionate without being unjust. And an individual cannot merely be just to another individual without being unmerciful and uncompassionate. I hope this is getting across to you. It's so important that we learn to code shift between the two when we're dealing with groups that justice is the greatest expression of love and we're dealing with individuals, mercy and compassion. This is what Jesus operates in. Jesus is always operating in the micro. His teaching is always aimed at the micro, at individual hearts. But the church is a macro institution. Right? So it's got to have rules. And it's got to have a means of enforcing those rules. God only has one rule. Just one. And that's unity. Which looks like love. Looks like mercy in the micro. And then it looks like justice in the macro. Jesus at the end of his life, right before he goes to the cross, says, I have a new commandment for you. Just one. Just love each other as I have loved you. That's it. When he was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said to love God with your whole heart, mind, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. Just love. That's it. One rule. The Jews had 613 written ones and thousands of unwritten ones. How many laws have we got? God only has one. That's all you need. All you need is... (laughs) I was looking at the Beatle fan back there. I knew you were going to come up with it. That's all you need. If you have that, then all the rest are going to work themselves out just fine. You know, seek first the kingdom and all else will be added. This is what Jesus is talking about here. What do we all want? Well, we want to be loved and we want to be accepted. And we want to be loved and we want to be accepted while we're still wearing our orange jumpsuits, don't we? I mean, that's the whole point. When we're still being punished in the macro, we want to also know at the same time that we are loved and accepted. This is the beauty of what that girl was doing at that moment. He's still in jail. He's still being punished. He's paying his debt to society. But at the same time, he knows he hasn't lost her. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. Because we want someone to be looking at us the way that girl was looking at him And Jesus is trying to tell us over and over again that somebody does and is looking at us that way. So when we go back to Matthew 5.20, For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Doesn't sound very loving. Not real warm and fuzzy. But Jesus is hammering away at this central point. That law and obedience is not the highest good. What was the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees? It was law and obedience to the nth degree. They were masters at this. This is what they understood as the source of righteousness and the source of their acceptance to God. 
And Jesus is saying, that's not it. You've got to exceed that. The law and obedience to the law is not the source of righteousness. It's the source of lawfulness. But lawfulness is not necessarily righteous. And righteousness is not necessarily lawful. The situation, the person we're with determines what is righteous, not what is lawful. And it's certainly not the test or proof of God's acceptance for us. Jesus is trying to get across that there's a completely different conception of relationship with God than what the Pharisees have been teaching the people, what the church has been teaching us for 2,000 years, what our society teaches us, maybe what our families taught us, that there's a different way of looking at the relationship that is non-legal. And that's the key. Last week, I read the paraphrase of Matthew 5.20. I'm going to read it again. Um, this is my own coming from the, the uh, Aramaic understanding of these words, so take it for what it's worth. But instead of, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. When your deepest desire within becomes one and the same with God's deepest desire. When you value others more than yourself, when you see God in every breath, face, and moment, you will be fulfilling the purpose of the law and not just following rules. You will be in the kingdom of heaven by definition and not an instant before. See, it's about exceeding law, about exceeding this notion of righteousness from a legal perspective and going all the way to love, to move from the macro relationship, which is rooted in law and justice, to the micro, which is rooted in love and mercy and compassion. And where, when you actually get there, where the law disappears. The law is only needed when we don't have love yet. That is meant then to restrict our movement so that we're not hurting everybody and the group can continue to survive. But once you've got love, once the law is written on your heart, it disappears. You don't need it anymore. What you do will be right in the center. This is what Jesus is trying to get across. And here's the thing. We can only really believe that God's love exists as unconditional and degreeless when we're practicing it ourselves, when we can care for somebody who doesn't really deserve it, when we can show compassion to someone in their orange jumpsuit on the telephone with the glass separating us, when we can do that and are doing that and we're feeling our love moving into somebody who doesn't really deserve it, hasn't earned it, then we can finally understand how God loves us when we don't deserve it. It's in the practice of love that we finally get our arms and our heart and our minds around the concept of God's perfect love and not a moment before. That's what this is all about. Jesus' way is a way of practicing love, connection, unity that brings this all home to us in a way nothing else in life will ever do. But we can't actually practice this kind of love until we finally stop merely following rules. We have to take the law off its pedestal as the absolute authority 
over everything in our lives. Because as long as it occupies that space, we can't really move into the love that Jesus is talking about. We might even have to break a few rules in order to realize what's really going on here. There's a great story at Matthew 26 where in the last week before the crucifixion, Jesus goes to Bethany and, and visits some friends, and that's where Mary lives. And Mary comes, and she brings this vial of very expensive perfume and breaks it over his feet, and she's anointing his feet, and she's drying it with her hair, and Judas Iscariot just goes ballistic, and he says, what a waste. This could have been sold and the money used for the poor. And Jesus rebukes him. He says, wait a minute, you're always going to have the poor with you, but you're not always going to have me. What is he saying? First of all, he's immediately shifting from a macro focus to a micro one, right? Judas is talking about the poor, this amorphous group out there, right? Who knows what Judas's real motives were? You know, he was the treasurer of the group. Did he just want the money because he was skimming off the top? We don't know. Or was he just projecting outward at a safe distance his mercy and compassion so that he really didn't have to do it where it counted right in front of him in his own personal life? Mother Teresa has a wonderful saying where she says, it's much easier to send a cup of rice halfway around the world than it is to just deal with the people in your own home. (laughs) Isn't that true? It's comfortable if it's out there someplace. But Jesus isn't going to let that stand. What's he saying? He's saying the way that the world works, the plight of the poor is a, is a standing order. It's a status quo in life. It's always going to be such that there'll be haves and have-nots. You can't change that. But you can do something for the person who is right in front of you right here and right now because you're not always going to have that person with you. You're not always going to have me. He was not going to let Mary's complete, unbridled, and just, you know, full-on devotion and love be deterred, devalued in any way for some abstract concept. He brings it right back. That's what we're talking about. At the point that you are so completely immersed that you don't even care about the cost of the perfume that you are completely spilling all over everywhere. You have lost yourself in the kind of extravagance that God's love really contains. That's what the prodigal is all about. Wasteful extravagance. But it's really the prodigal father, not the prodigal son. The father is wasteful in his extravagance. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. Because using the macro can end up being excuse, an excuse for not doing in the micro the acts of love that will transform us because they will show us the nature of God's love. And it's hard to make that transition. I remember back in the 80s, it's getting scary to say that, you know, I was an adult back in the 80s, but there you go. You know, you guys weren't even born yet, probably. But I was working for a humanitarian organization that worked with in Mexico with children for children's uh, issues that, uh, you know, mostly nutrition and education. And we'd go down there and we'd work with the poor and, and you know, maybe we'd help a couple of dozen families and we'd, we'd give them food and we'd give them uniforms, whatever they needed in order to keep the kids in school and keep them fed. 
And at the same time that I'm helping a couple dozen down in Mexico, which, which takes all day or a couple of days or whatever we were doing, I also knew statistically that 50,000 children died in that same 24-hour period worldwide from malnutrition and vaccine-preventable disease. How could I hold those two things at once? To go down and help a couple of dozen when 50,000, I thought of it as Dodger Stadium full of kids, died that single day. That was devastating for me. It just tore me up inside. And it made everything that I was doing just feel completely useless. What was I doing? I had to make a shift. Some of you are probably thinking of the starfish on the beach, right? Come on, admit it. You're thinking of that story. You know that story? Little boy, this beach is strewn with starfish, and the little boy is throwing them back into the ocean. And a man comes up and says, what are you doing? You know, you can't even make a dent in how many starfish. It's not going to matter. He says, well, it matters to this one. I only touched two dozen kids. It mattered to them. When I was able to make that shift, then the din in my head started going, started going quiet. You know, That's what it takes. It takes the shift that Jesus is talking about. We like to live in the macro, in the abstract. It's safe. You can keep it at arm's length. But when love comes close, that's where it gets scary. That's where you got to get vulnerable. That's where you can get hurt. You can't get hurt from a distance, but you can sure get hurt when it's right in front of you. Jesus is always teaching us from the context of the micro, within the micro, within compassion, within the context of kingdom, and this micro relationship with God. And what he's trying to tell us is that the law is only and ever fulfilled in the micro. The law is only fulfilled in compassion, in love, and never just mere justice in the macro. That doesn't fulfill the intent of the law. Remember, the intent of the law is to preserve the life of the group and also to promote awareness of God's presence among us at the same time. That's done in the micro with each choice that you make. And so exceeding the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees is moving beyond the macro, beyond the law, into love, into the micro. And Jesus is going to be illustrating how this works throughout the rest of Matthew 5, and we're going to get to that. But there are three basic principles, I think, that change everything if we can get these into our heads first so that they can filter down into our hearts next. For spiritual and religious applications... Within that context, these principles take us from macro to micro, from law to relationship, from fear of punishment to love. And that's the context within which Jesus is working. If you have your inserts, it would probably be easier to follow along. John's not going to be able to get the principles up, but they're here. So the first principle, and understand, this is my interpretation. This is my gleaning of the principles from Jesus. So again, you're free to reject them anytime you want. These three principles are all closely related to each other. In fact, in many ways, they're saying the same thing. But I think taking a look at the three of these maybe can give us the facets we need. So as Jesus is trying to teach and shift the definition of the law, the first thing he's trying to get across to us is that keeping the law means fulfilling the purpose of the law, not merely following rules. All right? Fulfilling the law means fulfilling the purpose, the intent of the law, and not just following rules. In other words, you can't use the law just as a fig leaf 
Just because you have not broken a rule, then everything is fine. There's something deeper in that purpose that needs to be fulfilled. And here at um, Mark 7, listen to me, all of you, and understand. This is Jesus speaking. There is nothing outside the man. There is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. When he had left the crowd and entered the house, his disciples questioned him about the parable, and he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding also? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the man from the outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach, and is eliminated? Thus he declared, all foods clean. I probably should have set this up a little better for you. The context is about the dietary codes. Eating kosher, right? Certain foods are clean, certain foods are unclean. You can't eat the unclean ones. He had broken some of these, these oral traditions around the kosher law, and he was getting excoriated for it. And so he, he gives this response. This is perfect. Do you imagine how mind-blowing it was for them to make this little parenthetical comment that he declared all foods clean? Suddenly the codes have been handed down from Moses from Jesus' point of view, aren't holding water. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was going to go out and, and eat a horse or eat a pig, you know, unclean animals. He was going to stay kosher for the rest of his life. He didn't break, to our knowledge, any of the written laws. But what he's trying to do is get that point across. It's not just about following these laws. The laws come from the outside in. You can conform to them, but they are outside yourself. Kingdom, love, never works, never flows in that direction. It's not from the outside in, it's from the inside out. And the only way love can flow, unity can flow from the inside out, is if the heart has been transformed. He's trying to make that break. Fulfilling the purpose of the law does not mean just following rules. Two, obedience and disobedience are inward, not outward functions. They are matters of the heart. I always love telling the story from a previous pastor who said around the dinner table, his little daughter would always stand up and they'd keep telling her, sit down, Deborah, sit down. And she'd stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down. You know, finally he screams at her, sit down. And she sits down and she glares around the table. And she says, I might be sitting down on the outside, but on the inside I'm standing up. <laughs> Obedience and disobedience are inward, not outward functions. They are matters of the heart. Jesus, again, a little bit later in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who even looks at a woman with lust has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Tough saying. Now, is Jesus saying that adultery and mere lust are the same thing and punishable the same way? Of course not. Jesus makes complete common sense. He understands that. But what he's saying is that you can't use the law as a fig leaf. And just because you haven't infracted it, you haven't broken one of the rules, that you are really in this state of connection and unity, especially with your spouse. As soon as you move out in that direction, you've already moved away from the center of unity and connection. That fulfills the purpose of the law not just following the rules. They're inward functions, not outward. 
And three, outward forms and rituals mean nothing if the heart is not right. The law is fulfilled relationally and ethically, not legally and not ceremonially. Every time we do a sacrament here, whether it's baptism or, or when we have ordained, when we ordained Scott, he was the last one to be ordained, whatever we do, we always are quick to mention that a sacrament is an outward expression of an inward transformation. Without the inward transformation, the ritual that we perform, the sacrament itself, is meaningless. You know, go dunk yourself in the river. It doesn't matter. What's the reason that you're dunking yourself in the river? That's what matters. You are a walking and living sacrament, however you express it. But our expressions are beautiful, and they're macro. Now the group can join in the celebration and join in with the inspiration of what is happening. But nothing is happening if the heart hasn't first been transformed. Look at Hosea 6, which Matthew quotes in his chapter 9. This is God speaking. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. And knowledge here is intimate experience in Hebrew and Aramaic, not head knowledge. I desired mercy, not sacrifice. The knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. The sacrifices mean nothing if the heart is not changed. At Micah 6, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, does the Lord take delight in 10,000 of rams, in 10,000 rivers of oil? Now he's talking about those being burnt as sacrificial offerings, right? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? That's it. Do justice as you relate to the group. Do justice. But love kindness when you are dealing with an individual. And always know who you are. Know the nature of your relationship with God, with others, with nature itself, those three things put us right in the kingdom, right in the zone. And then finally at Matthew 5, a little bit later on again in the chapter, therefore if, you are therefore if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering because it won't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. You knew I was going to say that, right? All of our macro tools, everything that we use in the macro, whether it's justice, law, obedience, conformance, ritual, doctrine, won't and can't get us to kingdom because it doesn't work that way. God's love doesn't work that way from the outside in, but always from the inside out. It's like the elder brother of the prodigal. He must get past the fairness issue, the obedience issue, if he ever wants to get to the party. He's voluntarily keeping himself away from the party, away from the joy and away from the connection because he can't get past the fact that this isn't fair. Can he ever do that? 
The prisoner in the orange jumpsuit, his girlfriend understands this just innately. And you know what? She was probably criticized for what she was doing, probably criticized for the nature of the relationship that she had with this guy. What did her parents think of her still loving this guy who's now in jail and going to visit him? Do you think they really thought that was a great idea? Probably not. You know, maybe she was called a fool or being foolish. Maybe she was called codependent. Maybe she was called an enabler, a doormat for what she was doing. And maybe she was. I don't know. I don't know for anybody. I don't know what the situation was. But I'll tell you what. I would give anything to have my wife look at me the way she was looking at him when I was in my orange jumpsuit. To have her look at me with that kind of absolution, with that kind of forgiveness. when I didn't deserve it. Through the glass, over the phone. And to know that God looks at me that way all the time changes everything. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to us. It will change everything to know how your Father really looks at you. Not only loves you, but likes you, feels that affection for you, wants to hang out with you. To know that makes everything change. We can't approach God's love or even conceive of a love that Jesus is trying to represent for his Father. If we're looking through the lens of the law, if we're looking through the lens of justice, because they're not made of the same stuff. Apples and oranges. We're going to have to make a quantum leap. You can't inch your way to infinite love by going half the distance and half the distance and half the distance and half the distance. You'll never get there, right? We can't inch our way under a legal concept and finally break through to love. At some point, we're going to have to take the leap, the quantum leap. No other way to do this. How do we do that? What we're going to have to do is we're going to have to face the outrage of the elder brother of the prodigal. We're going to have to face that down and realize that it's real and admit to ourselves that the elder brother is right legally and he's also miserable. And the father is wrong legally and is beautifully joyful. Which would you rather be? To realize that happiness, shalom, kingdom are only possible in the unfairness of God's love in the micro. It's the only place we'll ever experience it. And so falling into an embrace that we'll never deserve but yet will never be denied is the experience that Jesus is trying to give us if we're willing. Let's pray. Father, your nature is too much. It is so hard for us to really begin to comprehend 
So we're giving you permission this morning to take us into situations, to allow us to see the situations as they present, as opportunities to practice the kind of love that you're telling us you have for us so that we can see that it's possible. And once we realize, as imperfect as we are, that we can practice love for the undeserving, for the unfinished, for the unripe, that you can do the same for us. Help us to change our perspective, Lord. Help us to let go of our sacred cows so that we can come home to you and join the party. Father, thank you for your love and your constancy. Never let us forget we can only love because you loved us first. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand.